0: Amen. Show us Christ. Show us Christ. God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word, so that we would see Christ. I wonder if that is your heart's desire, not only this morning, but I wonder if that's your heart's desire every moment of every day. If I were to ask you, what do you see as your greatest legacy and contribution in life? What goal are you living for? What is your aim? What's your mission? Why do you get up in the morning? There are so many different answers that people can give, and I would encourage you to think through functionally, what does that look like for you? What is my mission? What am I living for? But biblically, if we are followers of Jesus, our mission is to make much of Jesus, to know him and to make him known. That is the reason we have life. That's the reason we breathe. That's everything for us as believers. Our mission, our mandate given by God is to show him forth to be more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. That's why we live. So my question is, if that is our mission, if that is our goal, if that is our aim, if that's why we get up in the morning, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to be on mission in this world to show people the Lord? How are we to do that in a way that is faithfully obedient to him? The good news is the Bible tells us, and even in a text that seems to be as obscure as the one we are going to study this morning, we will still find principles that will give us an understanding of how we are to minister the gospel to those around us. We've been preaching through the gospel of Mark. Last Lord's Day, we began chapter 6, and we saw two very serious aspects of unbelief. That unbelief rejects what is clear because it's too common. And that unbelief prevents you from enjoying the full satisfaction of the Savior. And we talked about how that is so important for the disciples to see. They were with Jesus in Nazareth when these things were taking place. And it is so important for them to see that because they're about to go on mission and see the same rejection and unbelief. They need to know if the Master's getting it, we will too. And so we come to their commissioning. Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. And we will be looking just at verses 7 through 13 this morning. Let's read together. Jesus summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, and he added, don't put two tunics on. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and they preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. This is the word of God. Let's ask his blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every single part of it. We thank you for the clear parts, the obscure parts. We thank you for the easily applicable parts and the parts that we have to work a little bit harder. God, thank you for speaking. Thank you for showing us Christ in your word so that we would see your glory and we'd be transformed. And now we desire to take that and give it to other people to show them the message of Christ. But we want to do that in a way that is faithful to your word. We want to do that in a way that is modeled for us even here. So Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's day, open our eyes that we would see that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. Give us that gracious gift of illumination. We say with Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Mark chapter six, verses seven through 13, we will see five crucial aspects of gospel ministry. Five different aspects of of how we are to minister faithfully, obediently. But before we dive in, I want to make it very clear. This specific passage is for a specific context in ministry. For instance, in the Great Commission, there is no such thing given by Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28 about what they should wear, what they should take. That's not there. In fact, at the end of the Gospels, Jesus is going to send out the disciples again, but this time he's going to give them a different list of things that they should take and shouldn't take. So this list, we use these two words a lot in our church that are very helpful in studying the Bible. There's prescriptive and descriptive passages. This list is not prescriptive. Hopefully nobody, as you're reading through this and you have a purse sitting next to you, hopefully nobody felt like I've disobeyed God because God says don't bring a bag. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is descriptive of something that Jesus is telling his disciples. It's not prescriptive of how we're to go out and do ministry. But within descriptive passages, there are principles that are universal. There are principles underneath that are foundational to the descriptions. This is why in every narrative in the Bible, narratives are Almost always just descriptive. Very rarely are they prescriptive. This is how you should live. Go do this. We use the example of David and Goliath. We read that passage. Is that passage telling us that we should find somebody taller than us and throw a rock at their face? No, it's a descriptive passage. It's just telling us a story. Now there's a principle underneath that passage that all of us can glean from. Faith in God, trusting his promises, having courage. Same thing is true here. This is descriptive, so I don't want to make too much of it. I'm not going to tell you that you also should take no bread, no bag, no money. No, that's not what this passage is saying for you today. But there's principles inside of the descriptions that absolutely will help us to carry out our own personal ministry. So principle number one, if we're to minister faithfully, if we're to minister the gospel faithfully and obediently unto the Lord and to our fellow man, number one, we must testify to the truthfulness of Christ, We must testify to the truthfulness of Christ. This is in verse 7. Jesus summons the 12 and he begins to send them out. Sends them out. Sent ones. It's the Greek word apostello or apostolos where we get apostle. They are sent ones. That's what apostle means. They are sent ones. Jesus is doing something very new. This is radically new in Israel. Israel used to be, in the Old Testament, you had Israel being told by God, live unto me, live as uh, servants of Yahweh. You are citizens of Yahweh's land. Yahweh is your king. And if you live properly under Yahweh being your king, you'll be so prosperous, you'll be so blessed, that the nations will come to you saying, who is your God that we might serve him? That was the mission mandate in the Old Testament. Stay where you are, serve the Lord, worship him, and let the nations come to you. With a few exceptions, Jonah being one of them. That's the Old Testament paradigm for missions. Stay, let people come to you. Jesus is saying, new mission. You go to them. And he's sending them. And he sends them in pairs. He sends them in pairs. So he sends these disciples two by two. The disciples' track record thus far hadn't been the best. They've struggled to understand Jesus' teaching. They struggled to believe him during the storm. He says that they are of little faith. And yet Jesus says, I can use this. I can use you. It's been a year and a half since he first called them. And Jesus' teaching and his modeling, his example, has brought them to a place where he says, you're good to go. You're ready to go. I wonder in churches today, if they had the disciples where they are in this moment, I wonder if they would say, you know what, wait, I don't think you're ready to go yet. You need to be trained, you need to be equipped, you need to do more ministry, and then we'll send you out. No, Jesus says, you're good to go, we're ready. And he sends them out, and he sends them out in pairs. Why pairs? Pairs goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. In fact, Jesus quotes that passage in Matthew 18, verse 16, When he says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, something will be confirmed. If you make an objective statement about reality, it will be confirmed by the people around you. You are testifying to the truthfulness of something by saying, I have other people that can corroborate with me. So why send them out in pairs? Because they are corroborating reality. This is what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember Moses and Elijah show up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why two people? To corroborate reality. They're saying this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. Listen to him. Think about Luke chapter 10. Jesus is going to send out 72 followers. And he's going to send them out in Paris as well. Why? To corroborate reality. That's why I say the principle here in this passage is our job in ministry is to testify to the truthfulness of Jesus. We're not making stuff up. We're not living in a fantasy land. We're just saying this is what is true. I would tell my students that all the time when I was teaching at heritage here. I would tell them, I'm not a Christian primarily because of how it makes me feel. I'm not a Christian primarily because of the benefits. I'm a Christian because it's true. This is just what's true. And I follow what is true. And in following it, I get all of the, the benefits that come from it. Christian ministry needs to be corroborated. We're, we're testifying to the validity of what Jesus has said. So today, what corroborates Reality. Does this mean that you have to always go out in pairs? No, this isn't prescriptive, but it's descriptive of something, and there's a principle behind the description that tells us we can't go out and make stuff up. We have to corroborate what we're saying with the reality of the message of God's Word. The the Word of God, the gospel that's presented in the Scriptures, is what testifies to the truthfulness of what Jesus has said. The message is confirmed by the Scriptures. We always need to take people back to God's word as we're ministering the gospel. There's also a fascinating principle here that Christian ministry is to be shared with others. There's no such thing as lone ranger Christianity. Ministry is not a one-person show. And me, in my pragmatic mind, I read this and I see we've got 12 people. Wouldn't it be better pragmatically to send them out individually so they cover more ground? If you send them out in twos, that's only six groups You're doing less work. I think this is what Jesus would say. Uh, Ministry is more sustainable when you're doing it together. You'll last twice as long to cover twice as much ground in the long run. So don't do it by yourself. So my question to us this morning is, who are you doing ministry with? Who are you working in discipleship with? Who are you going out into the world with? Who are you ministering with? And how well can you corroborate reality? How well do you testify to the truthfulness of Jesus? There are so many lies out there, there are so many half truths out there. How well do you know the Word of God to be able to say, here is what is true? Ministry is testifying to the truthfulness of Jesus. Number two, second principle. Ministry, if we're going to do it faithfully, must be done, number two, in the power of Christ. We must minister in the power of Christ. We must testify to the truthfulness of Christ, but we also must minister in the power of Christ. This is the end of verse 7. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He gave them authority, power. He gives them the authority to exercise demons, to cast out demons, to tell the demons what to do. So how do you know that these disciples are telling the truth? Well, first, there are two of them. They're corroborating the evidence. They're looking at it together. They're saying, yes, I've seen it. I've testified to it. It's true. And then secondly, their miracles are affirming their message. Their miracles are affirming. This is true not only because I've seen it and there's evidence that I can tell you based off of what I've seen, but then also look at what I can do by the power of Jesus. Their their message and their deeds were to be an extension of Jesus' own message and deeds. It's just simply an extension. It's Jesus's authority through them. It's not their own authority. Notice how Jesus himself is the example. He teaches and sends them out to teach. He has power over demons and sends them out with that same power. He's the model. He's the example. They were never to do anything new. They just followed what Jesus did and what he said. There's a, a, a warning in this passage that we should never be innovative in our ministry and in our discipleship. Just do what Jesus did and say what he said. As one pastor used to say, God's people need to do God's work, God's way, in God's power. Casting out demons proved that the kingdom of God was there in their midst. This is what Luke chapter 11 verse 20 says. Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. This is an evidence. It's a a miraculous statement that says God is here doing something. We need to minister in the power of Christ. But notice it's in the power of Christ. It's Christ's power, it's not ours. They were not given autonomous authority, they were to use the authority that Jesus has given to them. They're using his authority. They have no authority inside of themselves. Their authority is a derived authority. Anything that they had to say with authority had authority because it came from Jesus. This is so vital for our day and age for a number of different reasons. One of them most recently just uh, popped up again um, with conversations that I was having with people this week over the contention. There are people uh, that say that Paul and Jesus have different messages Paul has a gospel contrary to Jesus' gospel, and they contradict. They have different messages in the word of God. Now, hopefully, your understanding of the doctrine of God's word, the doctrine of inspired, inerrant, infallible scripture, would make you automatically say, that's wrong, and I reject that. But here's another reason where you can say that's wrong. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the will of Christ Jesus, sent with Jesus' words He's a sent one given authority by Jesus. So he's speaking on behalf of Jesus and he's speaking Jesus' authority. So he would never say things that contradict. He would never write scripture that contradicts with what Jesus had said because he's a sent one. And Paul himself will tell the church in Ephesus, they're doing the same thing. You have been given the ministry of an overseer by the Holy Spirit. You are to run that office as someone who has the authority given to them by Jesus. And you and I have the exact same authority based off of God's word. We're able to say, thus saith the Lord. I don't have any authority inside myself, but I'm able to say authoritatively, this is what God has said because I have his word. And we're not going to be doing the exact same miracles that these disciples were doing. But as we corroborate to the truthfulness of Jesus' word, as we share his word, we are also giving them an example of a miracle that's taken place in the transformation of our own lives. So maybe we're not casting out demons, but as we share the truth of God and we corroborate, we testify to the truthfulness of Jesus, we are also accompanying that truthfulness with the power of Christ as emphasized and demonstrated in our own miraculous transformation. So we are to testify to the truthfulness of Jesus. We are to minister in the power of Jesus. Number three, third aspect. Third aspect of how we are to minister. Number three, we're to minister dependent on the provision of Christ. We're to minister dependent on the provision of Christ. We testify to the truthfulness of Christ. We minister in the power of Christ. And then we minister dependent on the provision of Christ. This is verses 8 and 9. He instructs them that they they should take nothing for their journey except for a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, wear sandals, and don't put on two tunics. What's this about? Why is he saying this? Why aren't they allowed to take money, a bag, extra cloaks? Why? The reason why is Jesus is putting them in a position where they must trust him to provide. He's placing them in a position where they are 100% dependent on him. Think about the things he says not to take. Don't take bread. Don't take anything to eat. Trust that I'll provide. They're supposed to be dependent on the people that they're sharing the gospel with to provide. Think of how crazy that is to trust God to say I'm gonna go speak a message that they may never have heard and they probably don't agree with and I trust that God's gonna work in their hearts such that they will receive it and they will welcome me into their house. This is crazy. And Jesus says, yes, depend on me. I'll provide. Don't take a bag. That word for bag is the Greek word for a beggar's bag. Don't go about begging for money or for food. Don't go about earning money based off of healing people. That's not why you're going in ministry. This is in contrast to the Pharisees who would steal from the poor constantly. They would um, sell their fake gospel constantly. Jesus is saying, this isn't for sale. Don't go around with a a money bag waiting to stockpile cash because you're going as a missionary. He says, don't bring money. Trust God. Trust God. Also, I love this. There's also an emphasis in this to get going on your mission. Don't bring anything. Trust the Lord to provide, but he's going to provide through the means of other people as you go share the gospel. So go share the gospel. Don't bring two tunics. Usually you would take two tunics for protection from the elements as you slept outside. And Jesus says, you're not going to be sleeping outside. I'm going to provide shelter for you. You don't need an extra tunic. You'll be fine. What are they supposed to take? They're supposed to take four things. One tunic, staff, sandals, and a belt. Tunic, wear the same one over and over and over and over again. This is in contrast to the Pharisees who would always walk around in splendor and uh, glory and majesty. And Jesus says, no, just wear the same thing. We're not in this to get rich. We're not in this to look amazing. He commands them to take a staff, and this is very interesting because if you look at the parallel passages, Jesus says, don't take a staff. This is one of those places where people would say, well, the scriptures contradict. Jesus here says, take a staff, and there he says, don't take a staff. Which is it? Luke chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus says, don't take a staff. Mark says, take a staff. I think it's helpful to remember Psalm 23. Remember your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's the, the walking stick staff and then there's the rod that's used to scare away, to um, attack anyone who's coming after your sheep. I think what Jesus is saying here is take the walking stick because you're going to be doing a lot of walking. But don't take anything for protection. Don't take a rod. I will protect you. I'll defend you. Take a belt and sandals. Sandals, were uh, it's a word for light sandals, not heavier shoes. You don't need extra ones. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. There's also an element here of traveling light. This is what the Israelites actually wore when they left Egypt. There was a sense of urgency. Go now. Don't pack. You don't need to be weighed down, bogged down by something. Don't be slowed down in your ministry. Go. Again, there's a principle here of asking our own hearts, what encumbers you? What slows you down as you're going in ministry? Hebrews chapter 12 would say, throw away the sin, obviously. Get rid of the sin. But then throw away every weight, every encumbrance, anything, a good thing that slows you down as you follow the Lord. That's what he's saying. Just get, all, get rid of all of that. He's also saying, in essence, you don't need to stockpile stuff in this world. This world isn't your home. We can't take any of it with us when we die. I love the way that C.S. Lewis used to talk about this world and the next world. He would say, this world is like living for believers. It's like living in a hotel. We're not living there permanently. We're going to be moving to our home, but we're staying in a hotel for now. And so we're not changing the curtains. We're not changing the floor. We're not buying appliances. We're just staying there. And then one day we'll go to our permanent location, our permanent home. Jesus says, no, just, this isn't where you stockpile stuff. And there's a reliance. Depend on me. Trust me. When Jesus sends them out again in Luke 22, verses 35 through 37, he's going to send them out at the end of his ministry, and he gives them a totally different list of things that they should take and shouldn't take. And in that list, he says, You can take pretty much whatever you want. There's some things you shouldn't take, but you can take other things. You can take uh, the, the, the rod for protection, you can take things like that. You could take a sword, you could take food, you could take money back, you could take other stuff. Why the change? Because here, Jesus is saying, will you trust me? And can I prove to you that I'll provide? And once they come back and they're like, oh my word, you trust, we trusted you and you provided, you came through. I can trust you no matter what. That's when Jesus says, okay, you can take whatever you want now because you trust me. You know I'll provide. Even if you lose those things, you know I'll provide. Jesus sends them out. And if he sends you out, all you need is a stick. Because <laughs> if he's the one saying, I've got your back, you have everything you need. You have everything you need. Then there's a continuation of this in verse 10. There's another added feature of what they should and shouldn't do. He says to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. What is he saying? He's saying, "When you get to a new town and somebody invites you in to stay, uh, there's an aspect here of we're going to further your ministry, we're going to help you, we're supporting you. By the way, you can just write these down. We don't have time to go there, but second John verses 9 through 11, and third John verse eight. This is where John, in Second John verses 9: 11, he says, "You should not receive false teachers into your home, and in doing so, you're partaking with them." Um, You shouldn't have any furthering of the message, any supporting of their ministry. I don't think that that text means that if Mormons come to your door, that you can't invite them to come on in and sit with you and even feed them. I don't think that that's what that text is saying at all. Because in context to what this culture is, what it's saying is, don't receive them to let them be guests at your house, to stay with you as you support their ministry. And so here Jesus says, hey, if somebody does support your ministry... If somebody welcomes you into their home, stay there and don't move until you leave that town. Why is he saying that? Because what happens if another family comes to you in that same town as you're preaching the gospel and this family says you can stay with us and this family has a jacuzzi, two stories, plasma screen TV, has everything you need and the first house that you're staying at you're in a tiny little guest house in the back. If you say to that first family, thanks so much for your offer and your generosity, we're moving to this bigger, better, nicer house with better things. Thanks so much. Notice you're doing two things. Number one, that's gonna be super offensive to the first family. But number two, you are showing to the world around you I'm just really on mission to get the, the best thing I could possibly get. I'm not here to share the gospel and just live wherever God provides. No, I want to get as much as I can. And if I have a better offer somewhere, I'm going for the better offer. No, Jesus says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Trust me. Don't be open to better offers at the risk of offending the humble homeowner. And don't make it look like you're using the gospel to get rich. You're not in ministry to make a means for yourself of accumulating stuff. What about you? Do you, provide, do you trust the Lord to provide? Maybe for you it's not a provision of finances and food like it is here in this text. Maybe for you as you minister, it's trusting the Lord to provide boldness and courage to say hard things in love. Maybe for you, there's a friend that you have or a coworker or a family member that you know there's difficult conversations. Maybe they're asking you questions that you don't fully understand how to respond. Do you trust the Lord to provide? As you dive into his word, do you trust him through his spirit to bring to remembrance those truths and to help you, to equip you? Do you trust the Lord to provide? Grace to love those that are hard to love. Patience to listen. Discernment to counsel. Do you trust him? And also... As you see him being trustworthy, raise an Ebenezer when he's provided. Remember that old terminology in the Old Testament? You would raise that monument stone, that statue. You would raise an Ebenezer to say, up until this point, God's always been faithful to us. He's always provided. And so we know he's going to always be faithful. Journal those things. Tell those things to your friends and your family. That's one of the reasons why baptism exists. It's raising an Ebenezer to say God has provided salvation. And if he's done the hardest thing, he will do the easier things in holding me, in changing me, in securing me, and in bringing me safely home. Do you trust the Lord to provide? These disciples were put in a very extreme place to trust God's provision. And as they get back from their mission this amazing missionary journey they get back from, they would be talking to each other of the glories and the victories of the gospel. How did God provide for you? What did he do for you? How did he sustain your ministry? And they're just sharing with one another how God provided. And I just see Jesus at the head of the table going, I told you so. I told you, just trust me. God will provide. Number four, A fourth principle from these verses. Number one, we testify to the truthfulness of Christ. Number two, we minister in the power of Christ. Number three, we are dependent on the provision of Christ. And number four, we render a verdict from Christ. Ministry requires rendering a verdict from Christ. This is in verse 11. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet, for a testimony against them. Again, we're not doing that. We don't do that. You don't have to shake the dust off of your uh, feet or your sandals. So what's happening here? This is what an Orthodox Jew would do when they would be returning from a Gentile country. If you had to do business in a Gentile territory, when you step back onto Jewish soil, into Israel, you would take your sandals off, and you'd smack them on the other side of that dividing line, get the dust off of your feet in a way of saying, I want the heathen, pagan land as far away from me as possible. They're outside the kingdom. They don't love God. They hate God. They are pagan idolaters, and I don't want them coming into my affections. So before I go home, shake the dust off your feet. It symbolized judgment. Paul and Barnabas did this at least once, recorded for us in Acts chapter 13, verse 51, when a a city did not receive them. They would shake the dust off their feet and leave. It's a a symbol of judgment. You're saying you have rejected the truth. That's hard for us to do. It's hard for us because I think in our sensitivity, we don't like to say you're wrong. Now, we should never say that offensively. Purposefully, offensively. You don't have to be mean-spirited about it. It should be said through tears as you speak the truth in love. But you must render a verdict from the truth of God's word. You must say, here's what's true, and therefore, here's what's not. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Jesus says, you disciples render that verdict once they reject the gospel. If they reject the gospel, you are to tell them they're outside the kingdom. And notice how offensive that would be because they're not doing it with Gentile people. They're doing it in Israel. They're saying to their Israelite neighbors, imagine Peter and Andrew standing there taking the sandals off their feet and smacking them together as the dust flies into the air and their Jewish countrymen looking on are saying, what are you saying I am? This is an indictment. You are claiming that I'm as bad as a Gentile? And I think Peter and Andrew through tears would say, if you reject Jesus as Messiah, then yes. There's no such thing as indifference to Christ. You're either for him or you're against him. And Jesus tells them parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10 verse 15 that on judgment day it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these Jewish people who hear the gospel, see the miracles being done and reject. Some people believe that God has more wrath stored up for more externally immoral people. They have this category for sexually immoral, greedy, oppressive. Those people are going to get it really bad on Judgment Day. But the religious people who tried hard but didn't receive Jesus, they'll be judged with a lighter sentence. The Bible actually says the opposite. The Bible says that people who know the truth, who see the truth, who hear the truth, and who reject the truth, that's what Ricky just read this morning, It'd be better if you never even heard the truth than for you to hear it, know it, receive it, and then say, actually, I don't want this, and reject it. Because in doing so, you actually incur a stricter judgment. It'll be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah, externally immoral people, it'll be easier for them on the day of judgment than religious people who knew the truth and chose to reject it. They saw all the evidence that they needed, and they chose to reject it. There's a warning here, the, light, the more light that we see and the more that we reject that light, the more truth that we know and the more that we reject it, the worse our punishment will be. So have you seen the light? Do you know the truth? Have you rendered a verdict for yourself on whether the gospel is true, whether the word of God is trustworthy, whether Jesus is the only way, or maybe in your mind, he's one of many ways. Have you rendered a verdict for yourself? Do you desire to know And to grow in the word. God will absolutely give you knowledge through his word. But it comes from a a desire. God has made humans in such a way that our mind sees more clearly when our wills are inclined toward and desiring the truth. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 7 verse 17. If anyone is willing to do the Father's will, he will know of the teaching. Are you willing? Are you willing? And if you are willing and you have received the truth, then you must share it with others with boldness, with clarity, with compassion, knowing that you know the truth and you can render a verdict on what is false. That's what Jesus is telling them. You can render a verdict on what is false. So to minister faithfully, We must, number one, testify to the truthfulness of Jesus. Number two, minister in the power of Christ. Number three, be dependent on the provision of Christ. Number four, render a verdict from Christ. And finally, number five. Once we have all of those as our foundation, then we, number five, faithfully obey Christ. Faithfully obey him. Notice, they go out, verses 12 and 13. They went out, they obeyed. They preached that men should repent. They were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. They went out, our job, uh, Ricky prayed this as well in his prayer this morning. Our job is simply to be faithful and obedience and let God do what he's gonna do. And so that's what they do. They just go out and they preach. They preach that men should repent. I love Thomas Watson, old English Puritan, wrote an incredibly helpful book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And in it, he highlights six different ingredients necessary for true repentance. Number one, you must have a sight of sin. You must see it for what it is. You have sorrow over sin. Number two, you have confession for sin. Number three, you have shame for sin. Number four, you have hatred for sin. Number five, and then and only then can you actually turn in repentance to the Lord. That's what they were preaching. There's so much here in this text. Just think of Judas. He's preaching this message. He's doing these miracles, and he is not saved. You can minister. You can share. You can say, here's what I think to be true. But if it's not actually true in your heart, and you haven't given your whole life to it, then you'll be like Judas. You're around the church. You're around godly things but you're not actually saved. They do these miracles, these signs and wonders in verse 14. Really, the, the rest of this passage should be involved in this sermon. Uh, we're not going to be able to get to it for the sake of time, but King Herod's going to hear that people are doing miracles, and he's not going to look at the disciples. He's going to say they did this by somebody else's authority, and they're, he's going to say maybe it's John the Baptist who was raised from the dead. Mark's going to include, he's going to do another one of those Mark and Sandwiches where he's going to give the commissioning of the disciples, take a break and and tell us about John the Baptist, and then go back to the commissioning of the disciples. There's something to be seen in the story of John the Baptist. There's opposition to ministry and to the message of the gospel. Being faithful to the Lord may mean losing your life, as we'll look at next Lord's Day. This mission is put in its context. You will be met with anger, with opposition, with hostility, and there will be unbelief. Just think about the unbelief that we saw last Lord's Day, and we'll see it again next Lord's Day, the unbelief of these people around. They would rather believe that John the Baptist has risen from the dead than to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They go, no, that can't be it. You can't be giving power and authority to people. No, I'll take John being raised from the dead. Why? Because their hearts are so full of unbelief. But for our time this morning, five different elements of ministry. Testify the truthfulness of Christ, minister in the power of Christ, depend on the provision of Christ, render a verdict on, from Christ himself, and then faithfully obey him as he sends you out in whatever relationships you have. We could sum it all up by saying Christian ministry is declaring the gospel in God's power, with God's authority, with accompanying signs to validate the message and demonstrate its power. So my question to you this morning is, How are you doing in ministry? How are you doing in ministry? We are all called to be ministers of the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to minister the gospel. How are you doing? Which one of these do you struggle the most with as you present the truth of Christ? This sums it all up in a very short, concise way. But I want to end with one word that we didn't really get to dive into. It's really the foundation of everything. It's in verse seven. The only way that we can minister effectively the only way that we can minister with perseverance is remembering, verse 7, that he has summoned us. You and I are not made a part of this mission by our own doing. We did not sign ourselves up. We were summoned. We did not qualify ourselves for our mission. We were summoned. The gospel mission is not our idea. It was given to us. It's not ours to create or to change or to turn to whatever we want. No, the gospel message was given to us. That means the success of the mission doesn't depend on our skillfulness. We just need to be faithful because the one who summoned us will always supply what is necessary to complete the task. And he will always sustain us because he summoned us. Do you know the risen Christ? Do you go out speaking his words? Do you depend on his provision? Do you render a verdict in his name? And do you faithfully obey, leaving the results to him? We can do that if we know 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are his ambassadors. Go into the world and preach the gospel because you are an ambassador of Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for such a rich passage that gives us such amazing principles regarding how we are to minister. Just like the disciples were given these very specific prescriptions, we are able to see deep into them and see the principles that we can apply to ourselves. And Father, I just pray that you would empower our church family to be an army of ministers, faithful ministers to the gospel ministry, that we would know Christ and make him known, that we would long to tell others. That would be our legacy. We want to know Christ and tell as many people as we can about him, which involves all five of these aspects. So God, help us. May we even have sweet conversations with others after our service today, just talking about where we're strong, where we're weak, where we need to grow, and, and ultimately where, where our greatest boast is. It's in Christ and Christ alone, not in our abilities, not in our skillfulness. We are We are relying on you. We're dependent on you to provide. We are trusting in the authority that you have. And we're just saying what you've already said and modeled for us. So God, help us to do that by the power of your spirit, according to your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.